Welcome to our feature interview for Insights, the faculty journal of Austin Seminary. I am William Greenway, editor of Insights and professor of philosophical theology. The author of our lead essay for the spring 2023 issue of Insights is Dr. Asante Todd, professor of ethics here at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Dr. Todd received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Texas at Austin in Religious Studies and English, his Master of Divinity right here at APTS, and his PhD from Vanderbilt University, where he wrote a dissertation entitled The One and the Many, a Discourse Analysis of Sovereignty in Liberal Civic Republicanism with Prospects for an African-American Political Theology. He has been awarded many awards and fellowships, including a Wabash Teaching and Learning Grant, a Fund for Theological Education Dissertation Fellowship, a Lilly Endowment Fellowship in Theology and Practice, and the Austin Seminary Rachel Henderlite Award. Published essays include Black Lives Matter in the New Politics, In Search of Politics Beyond Categorical Politization, Politization, politicization, <laughs> let him say that word, uh, mass incarceration, war in the great world house, and post-colonial theology, a truly radical critique, the viability of liberation in post-colonial theology or social problems. He has lectured on issues of race, economy, theology, and ethics across the country, but I will not read all those titles. The topic of this issue of Insights, which was chosen by Dr. Todd, is African-American spiritualities, and the title of Professor Todd's essay, which we will discuss today, is African-American spirituality as creative response. An abbreviated written version of this discussion will appear in this issue of Insights. Welcome, Professor Todd. We are looking forward to hearing your insights about African-American spirituality as creative response. Thank you, Dr. Greenway. It's good to be here with you today and with insights uh, discussing these important issues, uh, African-American spiritualities and other contemporary issues that we may get into in conversation. Uh, as always, it's a joy uh, to be with you all. And um, let's get started. Let's, okay. let's talk about <laughs> So um, your dissertation advisor, Victor Anderson, wrote a book on creative exchange, uh, there, which is similar to your uh, uh, creative response. I couldn't help but notice that similarity. So are there ways in which um, uh, Professor Anderson's work, Victor Anderson's work, um, inspired your spirituality of creative response? Um, and what are the places at which your uh, spirituality of creative response is different than creative exchange as a way to look at African-American religious experience in his work? Thank you, Bill. That, that's a great question. You know, you, you, mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned the word dissertation. I started having a little bit of flashbacks there. Um, great time at Vanderbilt, but, you know, dissertation is not necessarily the, 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 the ideal time in one's life, dissertation writing. Um, but I did learn a lot at Vanderbilt, and especially from my uh, advisor, Victor Anderson. Um, he's got uh, several great texts out that have been formative and influential in my thinking, not only his book on creative exchange, 
which is a book on constructive theology of African-American religious experience, but also uh, one of his earliest works, Pragmatic Theology, <clears throat> has really inspired a lot of my thinking, as well as uh, another book of his, Beyond Ontological Blackness, which we'll talk about a little bit. These books have uh, uh, constructively challenged me, I think, in some really important ways. I will say that a creative response is one type of African-American spirituality that I identify within the larger uh, the larger pra- set of practices and discourse that is African-American spirituality. And, and so maybe this is beginning to help talk about how Anderson has shaped my work and also talk about uh, you know, whether this thing called creative response is quote unquote mine. You know, I um I'm I'm still thinking about that. And and let me elaborate on this. So Anderson's work was really important for me uh, because Anderson, like myself, is concerned with similar goals to those of Black theologians of liberation, right? Concerned with uh, African-American life chances in U.S. society, concerned with uh, various forms of oppression that visit African-American life. Anderson's Concern, however, with Black theology of liberation was its particular method when it went to do theology in its own sources. And maybe I'll just say a couple of ways in which Anderson has inspired me in thinking about how I do theology a little bit differently. Um, Black theology of liberation, I think, has venerable goals, and I identify with several of them. but. Black theology has a tendency sometimes to look back into history, having already defined what the values and agendas already are. Right. So, so in a way, uh, and again, this is not a universal trait, but it can be uh, the tendency that sometimes we liberation theologians carry certain values in back into history and find them there. And those values really weren't there. Right. We, we, I guess if you want to think about this in terms of old school, biblical exegesis, we kind of eisegete, we read something onto history that is not necessarily there. And it's usually this coin term liberation, which can mean a range of different things. And I think you even see it show up in my work of creative response in a certain way. But I think the fact of the matter is that whenever you look into African-American religious history, you don't always see that there. At least that's what my research has shown me. All right. And so Anderson helped me to really uh, take seriously the various source, the the various uh, ways in which African-American religion may have manifested itself. And so I say all that to say creative response is only one type of uh, African-American religious expression that I see uh, when I analyze the discourse on African-American religious spirituality. And so, you know, is, is it mine? Is creative response mine? Well, I think maybe I've 
along with some other others who have helped me identify a certain strand or a certain kind of approach to African-American spirituality. But in another way, creative response belongs to uh, the original practitioners, right? And as well as those who have theorized or, or taken note of it in scholarly and other kinds of literature. And so um, I also think there are other modes or types of African-American spirituality that I really just don't have the space to discuss in this essay that also add value to African-American religious life, but don't necessarily place an emphasis on certain aspects of life and the world in the same way as, as creative response. And so, uh, you know, in, in my upcoming book, uh, which I'm still working on, I'll, I give an exhaustive discussion of these three types. But in this essay, I can only really focus on this one type. So instead of reading back into history the values that I want, I take what's uh, the, the method I uh, use is following Anderson is a genealogical approach, right? You go into history to look for the difference and the ways in which what we think is there as a monolith or a uniform is really broken up into these smaller pieces that are saying different things. And before we say whether that's good or bad, we have to acknowledge that that's what is. And so this is what my research is trying to do. And this is why it looks a little bit different, perhaps, right, than some uh, articulations of Black theology of liberation, even though I consider some of the uh, goals of Black theology of liberation to be consonant with the kind of work that I'm doing here. Um, maybe I'll say one other. Uh, point on this uh, question of the ways in which Anderson's work has influenced my own. And this is, uh, Anderson talks about this thing called, uh, he uses this word opacity of Black religious sources. In other words, um, there, has, there has been a, a habit and a practice and a tendency in much of African-American uh, theology to focus primarily on uh, A, Black sources, and B, particularly slave narratives, right? This you see, you, if, if you, to the extent that you are tracking African-American religious thought, you know that in the late 20th century, in the work of figures like Dwight Hopkins, for example, African-American uh, theology began to turn towards slave narratives as sources uh, that were appropriate for Black religious thought, as sort of alternative sources to other sources that uh, perhaps were not as, quote-unquote, viewed as not, a, not as trustworthy or as reliable as slave narratives. Um, Anderson's work really wants to open up the kinds of sources that one is able to uh, avail themselves of in exploring African-American religious thought. So yes, uh, slave narratives are definitely part of what I consider in my research, but now I also consider things, uh, uh, well, in general sense, a lot more cultural products, right? Uh, songs, uh, art, uh, all these different ways of, of human beings making uh, themselves and, and making ways of life and making ways in the world uh, that previously for different reasons, 
Black theologians didn't necessarily pay attention to. And so in those, probably those two key ways, I would say at least, uh, Anderson's work has uh, informed mine, A, uh, the genealogical approach, and then B, this idea of opening myself up to more sources in exploring African-American religious thought and uh, finding life and expression in these sources. Right. That gives me the perfect segue to the second question, right? Because okay, good. The, you start your essay with a, a, talking about a painting, uh, uh, a, <laughs> an early 19th century uh, painting of a baptism scene. Um, everyone in the scene is Black. Presumably they're all slaves, including the pastor doing the baptizing. Um, and, and I know in your office, there's, uh, and that's, I should say, the Clementine Hunter's painting Baptism. Uh, which is also yes. going to be on the cover of our journal Insights, uh, so people yes, will be able to great. see it. I know there's another baptismal scene, uh, same sort of scene, different painter uh, that's in your office. So, yes. um, <clears throat> so what is it about a, a couple of things? And uh, uh, for you to come in, one, what is it about these baptismal scenes, which is so resonant for you, speak so powerfully for you? Um, how have you found them to speak so powerfully? Um, and then, um, you know, talk about how you think in terms of realism and expressionism and, um, and and what you're using the painting to do. So I kind of want to know two things. I want to know, one, on a personal level, uh, what is it when you saw first, you know, where did you first see this painting? Did it immediately resonate? How does it resonate? Um, and two, maybe explain to us a bit in the more technical way you do in the essay, um, how you see the, the painting uh, generative of this uh, tension, which feeds into creativity and creative response of uh, realism and expressionism. Yes, uh, great. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, this research has, has pushed me into previously <clears throat> unexplored areas of, of African-American religious uh, religion and culture, I guess you could say. Uh, one of them being art, painting, this kind of thing. Um, I was really drawn, first drawn to uh, the baptism painting, Clement Hine Hunter's baptism painting, while doing research in African-American religious thought. And, and I think you see this in the essay. Uh, it comes up. Uh, in a book by a scholar by the name of Diane Glaive <clears throat> called Rooted in the Earth. Right? Glaive discusses this painting and its religious and uh, cultural significance. And I was really struck and inspired by Glaive's interpretation of the painting to the extent that I went and did a little research on my own. You know, I kind of Googled around and, and did some research on Hunter and looked at some of the paintings. And what I began to discover, well, first I'll say something about Hunter's interpretation, then I'll say something about the, the painting in general. First is that for Hunter, and this is what I tried to convey in this tension between the realist dimensions of the painting and what I call the expressivist dimensions of the painting. For Hunter, there's a way in which <clears throat> This painting, The Baptism, plays on and mimics in a certain way the baptism scene of 
Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness that we find in the New Testament. And in the biblical scene, of course, Jesus is baptized, and it's a sign of, uh, of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, a sign that uh, God is well-pleased with Jesus, and maybe even a sign, also a sign of Jesus' uh, chosenness, right? All these different things is what it means. But until in all that is a sign of promise of renewal and rejuvenation. And this is one of the key themes that shows up in these paintings and also in African-American spirituality of creative response, this theme of rejuvenation. And for Hunter, she wanted to emphasize the theme to the extent that she effectively recreates the wilderness in her painting such that it is now a scene crawling with the abundant life of creation, right? This is for Hunter an interpretation of the power of spiritual renewal, right? That it is not only a, a spiritual renewal that energizes or rejuvenates one uh, existentially, but that it also has impact and consequences materially, right, in the world, in nature, in reality. This, this is one of Hunter's main points. And this, I thought, was a really compelling point for me and one that I, I saw as really compelling and pivotal for the spirituality of creative response. That this idea of rejuvenation is so important that it even leads to the possibilities for Hunter of being able to transform the wilderness itself, <clears throat> right? And we can talk more about what that means and what that doesn't mean, but this is one of the things, and for, for maybe instantly for African-Americans, it means transforming uh, oppressive and brutal experiences, right? Into something more constructive, positive, uh, uh, life-affirming. Um, having found Hunter's painting, I then began to notice that this theme of baptism was a common theme in uh, several aspects of African-American art. Uh, and so that that is still sort of a new piece of datum to me, but my hunch is that it indicates a certain strand of African-American religious spirituality, right? Or a certain, excuse me, my language is failing here, a certain strand of African-American spirituality, namely uh, a spirituality that wants to emphasize, yes, rejuvenation, as I've said, but also a spirituality that is not separated from the world, that is somehow... Uh, in this relationship of tension with the world, such that although there are brutal realities that we have to confront and deal with and, or that, that come to us and visit upon us, that can't be the end of the story. Right? Expressive, expressiveness also means something else, especially in mid-20th century African-American art. It also means that there was a hope for many African-American artists that this rejuvenating sensibility or this rejuvenating energy would have implications not only for African-American culture, but that could that would also have implications for a larger U.S. society and even global society in general. Right? So, so much of African-American spirituality, especially spirituality creative response, seeks uh, 
to find ways to contribute uh, rejuvenation and healing, not only to Black culture, but to other cultures as well, because Creative Response understands that cultures are interconnected, distinct, yes, but also in relationship to one another, right? And so there's a hope in that a certain uh, disposition or orientation toward rejuvenation would uh, reach beyond the boundaries, the loose boundaries they are of African-American culture. And that perhaps other uh, groups or cultures or individuals would also, to some degree or another, experience some kind of healing rejuvenation, whatever that looks like, right? Uh, we could talk about all different things that looks like, but I think that all that is wrapped up in these themes and these paintings of baptism that you see, not only through Hunter, but there's another uh, painter. You're mentioning the painter in my office by the name of Don Reeser, who's got a great rendition of the baptism as well. Um, so it's there, but of course, when I first see these baptism paintings, I don't immediately think all of that unless I'm reading Blade. The, the immediate thing I think is serenity, right? These paintings give you a sense of somehow uh, a space of serenity and focus and uh, some kind of self-possession in the midst of all of this, uh, uh, in the midst of these oppressive conditions. And for me, uh, that, that was fascinating. And a, a bit of a spiritual feat, I guess, I guess you could say. Um, for one to be critically aware of some of the realistic brutalities in U.S. society, right? You're not sort of just idealizing or wishing this stuff away or dreaming it away, but to also be able to find serenity, even as you're critically aware. I think this is what these paintings communicate to me uh, in a certain way as well. Thank you um, for that, that question, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, 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 um, you speak of um, African American spirituality, um, and of course, you're doing an African American spirituality response. You, there's African American spiritualities, uh, African American spirituality yes. creative exchange, among others that you'll look at. Uh, uh, people also use language of African American, African uh, Black American, Black, and then African. Uh, spiritualities. Could could you help everyone just kind of help us clarify what are the distinctions between African American, Black American, Black and African? Um, if 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 that's helpful, or maybe maybe these terms I've left out, but just kind of what's at stake in the use of the various uh, terms? Uh, <clears throat> um, that, that's a, a great question. Um, you, first of all, you you probably have left out some. I probably leave out some. Um, you you can tell even by the the ways in which um, you're using the language that that uh, there's a sense of of transition and change and, and maybe movement. Um, you know, in, in a larger sense, I mean, di different people have different ways of understanding each of these terms. In a larger sense, I think all of this is reflective of African-Americans trying to find a sense of identity given the particularity of 
a largely marginalized social position, right? Um, one way that this can be interpreted is that all of these are different ways, right? We talk about Black American, African American, Afro American. You know, that was a, a big, uh, a big way of, of conceptualizing things. Maybe in the the sixties, um, all these reflect uh, still, and maybe sadly, uh, what W. E. B. Du Bois called at the early twentieth century. Uh, double consciousness, right? The attuneness, right? A sense of being American, yes, but not fully American. Also African, or, you know, uh, and so I, I would I would say that in all these ways, it reflects this two-ness and, and a constant attempt for African-Americans to reconcile these with out obliterating either, right? You you, you don't want to, you know, I don't know that, you know, I guess different people have different understandings of, of this two-ness that, that Du Bois lifted up. Some people say it's a bad psychology, it's X, Y, and Z, but I think at the end of the day, most African-Americans don't want to get rid of either part of themselves if, if you want to bifurcate uh, in that way. It's about learning how to reconcile these elements. And I think this is what all these languages are trying to do in ways that are satisfactory uh, for one's uh, sense of identity, a sense of self, a sense of dignity. Um, I use the term African-American, um, but even in sometimes my writing, I may move and say black, right? For, for me, this term, uh, will sometimes shift based on what I want to emphasize, right? Uh, maybe I'll say one more comment and we can continue if you like. I, I think all this needs to be taken into account uh, in, in light of conversations that we're at in, in this postmodern moment where people are saying uh, there's no such, some people are saying there's no such thing as a quote-unquote uniform black identity. I think that, that's a larger question that makes all the right. Is, is there a monolithic black identity? Well, I think the simple answer is no, but even my, my own research has shown me, right, when you talk about creative response versus these other modes of spiritual types of spirituality that I weren't wasn't able to articulate in the essay, uh, communal contemplation of voluntary creativity, right? These are some other forms. These show that even historically, right? African-Americans did not necessarily imagine themselves as a, in, in monolithic ways and forms, right? Um, but I do think we remain, in a large sense, caught between a tension that every African-American has to reconcile. And I'll, I think this larger tension is, A, yes, we are definitely in a moment of postmodern Blackness. We're definitely in a moment where African-Americans are contesting one another about what it means to be Black, right? And I think yeah, uh, a, a, a paradigmatic example of this that remains pivotal in, in Black culture is whatever the, what is called the quote-unquote 
old civil rights guard, persons like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, confronted uh, quote unquote hip hop hip hop culture in in the guise of movements like Black Lives Matter, right? And these kinds of things. There's a bit of a disconnect there, right? Where much of the old civil rights guard does not identify with the ways in which hip hop culture understands its sense of identity, perhaps sexuality, right? Perhaps respectability, politics, perhaps modes of protest. And so there are often tensions and same vice versa, right? Uh, hip hop culture doesn't necessarily understand the civil rights generation. In these and other ways, black identity is showing itself to be more than a monolith, right? It, it's, it's diffused, it's, it's broken up. But at the same time, we still exist within a society where we fall within and underneath certain linguistic and other significations uh, produced by Anglo culture, right? So for example, and I briefly mentioned this in, in the essay, the idea of stand your ground culture, right? Although it may technically fall differently on different black bodies, in a general sense, every black body stands in danger of being becoming a victim of stand your ground culture. Um, I think the incident with uh, Trayvon Martin really sent a chill up the spine, not only of hip hop culture, but also civil rights activists, right? Both of these groups were really concerned about what happened in the incident of Trayvon Martin, right? So there, there's a tension there that I think every African-American has to reconcile is that while, yes, we are in a moment of postmodern blackness and there is real difference that needs to be discussed, there's class difference, right? There's class disagreement among uh, African-Americans. Uh, religious disagreement, all sorts of disagreement, gender disagreement. But there are also ways in which um, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, um, these distinctions don't necessarily uh, <laughs> matter, I guess you could say, or, or um, other products cause these distinctions to become monolithic in, in certain ways, I guess, in relation to certain powers uh, and, and authorities or principalities, however you want to phrase that. So it, it's, it's a difficult um, tension to walk, but I think the tension itself reflected in this, in this peculiar situation, strange situation that uh, African-Americans find themselves in uh, perennially. Yeah. It's common <clears throat> for spiritualities to emphasize connections with other people, um, but you also emphasize interconnectedness uh, with nature. Uh, I want to ask a couple of questions all at once in this regard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one is, um, are there any particular personal experiences uh, growing up, any, any ways in which your own uh, personal life, uh, you know, a, a kind of awakened you to nature so that this remained an emphasis um and then also you in in this in this regard you stress the metaphor of the garden 
And in terms of creative response, the, the, the ideas of us as co-creators and cultivators um, emerge um, as, uh, as central. Uh, so how is a cultivator a co-creator? What's special about that? And then uh, finally, you followed Dolores Williams in naming a, a, a different sort of tunis. This is a, a different tunis than the one you were just talking about um, that she describes in terms of African-American uh, relationship to nature. So could you kind of speak to all of that? Speak to your your whether there's personal experiences, which are a, a reason why this is um of significance and a moment to you to include how these uh, metaphors of co-creator and cultivator in the garden uh, function for spirituality of creative response and uh, in conversation with Doris Williams and, and explaining what she means there uh, by Tunis and how you um, uh, understand that. Yes, um, so I'll start with the first one. Um, you know, it, it's, Maybe ironic and kind of sad that you asked this question because I don't, I feel like I don't have enough experiences uh, with nature after having done this research. Um, and it's, and it's made me want to be more intentional about the ways I experience nature, especially things like, you know, what, what does it mean to garden and plant all the kind of stuff. So I'll say when I was a very young boy, I had to be no more than maybe three or four or something. Uh, I have this great memory of being out, outside of my house. My parents had a house and in the front yard sort of to the right, they did have a garden. You know, this is, this is an old memory and I've forgotten it, but actually this question is, reminding me of this um and i would spend a lot of time in that garden and apparently i loved it so much that my dad at a certain point gave me a nickname and yeah you're making me just think of this i haven't even looked this up but it's a swahili nickname and the name is pronounced unguniuntu it's it's yeah i'll say it again unguniuntu and the name means bug man <laughs> so Apparently, when I was a little boy, I would go into the garden and I like to play with the bugs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was so long ago that I've forgotten about it. Um, sadly, since that time, I think most of my experiences of nature have been, uh, what is the saying, far and few in between or something like that. You know, so... I don't know if you can call going to Barton Springs. Uh, it is in a way nature, right? Yeah, it's something like in that. Austin, we count that. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> but you know, and I also thought about this. There was, I think, there was another question that uh, you mentioned about, you know, womanist talk, emphasizing the role of nature versus liberation theologians, this kind of thing, and I think that's partially true. But I wonder to what degree also uh, urbanization has had has played a key role in removing me and maybe a number of other people from this more direct contact with nature. Right. And this is not to say that we don't encounter nature in other ways, but it's to say. Um, 
a correlation that I've noticed is that at least, you know, the, the, whenever people were talking about nature in the late 19th century and African-American thought, religious thought, in early 20th century, they were on farms, right? Whether they were enslaved or emancipated, they were on the land itself. But then when you start looking at things like, uh, you know, the Great Migration and, and African-American movement from uh, the South into the North, right, to the more urban areas, a lot of that language changes. And, you know, maybe ironically, this is where nature uh, shows up not so much in actual practices as it does in art. You know, again, these are older simplifications and I'm doing more research on this, but I wonder to what degree urban environments uh, unintentionally or not, unwittingly or not, separate us from nature so that we kind of lose the ability to talk about it and to know what it is. You know, we 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 no longer know. Uh, and I don't want to romanticize this, right? There, there were some issues, where, but, but we no longer know what it means to wake up to the crow of a rooster or to work according to the rhythms of planting and harvesting and this kind of thing. These, these kinds of duties and tasks are now handed over uh, to corporations or to, to larger entities. Most people are now living in urban environments where most of this is done for them, right? And so this research has been interesting for me because in a way it has opened up a new horizon for me. I had not thought much about my relationship to nature, my spirituality, uh, to be quite honest, because of the ways that I had been uh, reading and doing theology. But now that this is on my radar, I'm now thinking that how can I be more intentional? And also, uh, Maybe a, a follow-up. Is it possible, right? This is another question that that I is is underneath my work. You know, all this talk about connecting to nature is great, but how do everyday African Americans or everyday any folk? How can we do that on a consistent basis? Uh, if things like property ownership are precarious, right, where you you don't necessarily have the land, the stabilized land resource to to grow things or to work with nature. Um, if we are uh, in different ways uh, fostering ecological disaster, right? There, there may not be a nature, and there, you know, there's another question we'll get down to where this come up again. But in all these ways, you know, I'm writing about nature, I'm talking about nature, but there's another question: is is how do we get back to nature? Um, and so that is a lingering question for me. You know, that's, that's one I think is worth asking, needs to be asked, but it's also, I think, one where uh, everyday realities don't always afford people the opportunity uh, to do things like plant gardens um, or to own land or these kinds of things. And so that's the tension um, that, that I'm really thinking about. Yeah. Can you speak a bit, and just a, the, what I, the question you're referring to, which I, I won't ask now, but let me just mention that the people you name when you talk about connection to nature are Diane Glaive, who you've talked about, Melanie Harris, Dolores Williams, and of course, Alice Walker. And I just, it was interesting to notice that 
when you did that, they all just happened to be womanists. Um, and and when I think of Malcolm X or Cohn or King or those others, it, at least to my knowledge, this is not a major theme. It may be there. And there's reasons for that. You talk about the urbanization, um, and that happens for everyone. Even with property ownership, a lot of people love to own property that's 10 stories in the air and has no earth connected to it at all. Yeah. You know, it's. I mean, yeah. that urbanization takes everyone, and it's a disconnect for everyone. Uh, but but there was something about Dolores Williams' Tunis, which I thought was kind of um, distinctive uh, and interesting to think about. Could you comment on that, about that a bit and what you think? I'm not sure if that is an uncontested notion or not, uh, but could you explain what it is and, and what you think of it, how she uh, unpacks that? Yeah, so, um, so I guess I'll say I, I see two questions here. One, one is about William's conversation about the two-ness of nature. And another is about just a general discussion about nature. Is that maybe right? But I think I was, yeah. And let me focus the question a bit more because I think um, that the, I think that if I'm, and maybe you need to correct me here, um, uh, but uh, as I understood it, the tuna she was referring to was the fact that in, in one respect, and we'll go back to your 19th century uh, paintings, um, and, and then before the shift where you have um, African-Americans along with, you know, all sorts of Americans, right? I mean, you have a, the reversal of the majority of the population in the countryside of the city. So urbanization happens to everyone. The city, the, the countrysides are emptied uh, by large scale um, operations and, yes. and entities, right? So you have all sorts of people. But, but what I think she's talking about is with um, African-Americans in particular, um, you know, in the period of slavery, they were bound to the earth in a very oppressive fashion. Yes. So, and, and even identified with earth or creatures in a, in a way yes. that's very um, problematic and, um, yes. and, and, and such, right? And, and, and whereas, um, so, so now there's a recovery of nature where you want to re-identify with nature, reconnect with nature, see oneself again as a creature of the land, but you've got this odd uh, distinctive history where that's yes. precisely what was used uh, against you. And also, yes. and, and this is something I've been curious about, and I think it, you know, just because of the nature of the situation, the writings and resources may be difficult to come by, but just in, in my experience and the reading I've done, Wilderness and nature are so inherently liberating and life-giving, like your experience as a boy, that even in the most oppressive contexts, you will hear people talk about their connections to a bird or an insect or a plant yes. or an escape in the midst of it, which makes me wonder if this Tunis was not, it's not something just experienced now, uh, but was experienced then in a way that maybe has not been recorded adequately, where you know, being of the oil, being of, of, of the soil, being connected to the creatures, you know, enjoying the stars and the birds, even in the midst of all the horror. I mean, this is kind of what the baptism scene is, yes. is, is uh, portraying, but in a, with a highly thematized, theorized, civilized sort of a way, right? Yes. Where, where maybe it's not just baptism, but maybe the that's where the nature elements of the baptism are so essential. So it's maybe it's important that it's not happening in a church, that it's actually happening by a stream. Um, yes. So that there's this tunis of one, an encounter uh, with creation, oneself as a fellow creature, which is liberating, empowering, enlivening. Another way in which precisely those identifications are being used against you 
and yes. and you're being bound in oppressive fashion uh, to yes. the earth and and to other crops and as a creature. I, that's what I thought the tunis was uh, that she was talking about, and I, that yes. might be wrong. And then how that would um, play out? Yes. Okay. So I I hear that question. I hear a different question. I happen to answer the both when I, when I hear about the question about womanists identifying this as opposed to maybe uh, male black male theologians. Yeah, and that maybe. was I, that was more uh, speculative because it just and, and, and sometimes people who are so so in case people don't know, womanist is kind of the name as a, a term coined by Alice Walker. Um, that was naming the intersection. So in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, you had a rise of Black liberation theology and feminist theology. Uh, but the feminist theology just happened to be largely by white women. And the Black liberation theology just happened to be, maybe not just happened, but for reasons that could be under, uh, explained, uh, happened to be all Black men. And so Alice Walker and others said, you know, I, I don't feel quite like a feminist because I'm not white. But I also don't feel like a black liberationist because I'm not a man. And so she, she, you took the term womanist to name this intersection uh, yes. between uh, black and feminist liberation um, approaches, and, and it yes. means that. And and then and so then I'm just noticing um, in your talk, and I don't know if it's an accident or not, that it's precisely these womanists. And, and Alice Walker, of course, I think everything in the color purple this tunis may be manifest and, 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 you know, and search of our mother's gardens, things like that. So, so it, it feels like that. Um, uh, and I don't know if it's accidental or not, but maybe there's an alertness to other intersections because of, um, of, 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 a, of a heightened marginalization or something like that. Anyway, that's my thought. Let me just stop yeah. and get you to reflect on all of those things. Yes. No, that's a great question. Um, I, I will. I, I will say I don't know the answer to that. I will say I know this. Um, while it is the case that uh, you know, when you look at the mid twentieth century, uh, persons like King and Cohn, uh, you know, I, I need to go back and look it in. I think you can say this about J. D. Otis Roberts, another. Uh, prominent uh, black theologian, uh, Malcolm X, if you want to talk about a non-Christian uh, black nationalist voice or African-American voice, black, black liberationist voice. Um, I don't know that any of these thinkers or public figures really talked about nature or connection to nature. I think that's right. When you go back and look at the Turn of the century, especially figures like W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, there are discussions about nature, right? There, there are discussions. I don't know to what degree they're talking about the ways they're one and connected to nature. You know, for example, and this, you know, he kind of received a lot of criticism from this from Du Bois, Booker T. Washington really kind of uh, looked at nature primarily as, as business venture. You know, what, how, how can we turn nature into cash flow as, as prominently as possible? So it wasn't, again, it wasn't a romantic or even a, maybe a 
the, the most spiritual understanding of nature, but conversation about nature today, well, for someone like W.B. Du Bois, nature did have more, more of an aesthetic value, right? There was something that could not be reduced to instrumental value in nature so that you would, you could find healing in nature for Du Bois. You could uh, find communion with the stars and the mountains would speak and, you know, that, that kind of thing, the waves would talk. So, um, maybe part of what is going on it is a critical returning to this awareness of a connection to nature um, after maybe a departure from it in the mid 20th century for, for various reasons. Perhaps that is what is going on. But having said that, it is indeed the case that womanist thinkers have been the lead on reigniting our interest and in nature and showing us our connection to nature. And this is probably primarily because in different ways, they spend uh, a lot of time, and this is not, you know, not to idealize or essentialize a lot of time in this thing we call nature. Um, and this maybe plays into some other question you're asking about nature. This term nature, you're right, it is complicated. It can be problematic because, yes, it was the very thing also used to subjugate African-Americans, right? That African-Americans were reducible to this thing called nature. And maybe uh, especially as opposed in a general sense of this thing called reason, right? That, that African-Americans were irrational in nature and Western uh, Anglo-European society was uh, rationalized nature if, if it was nature anymore at all, right? Uh, so I think there are a lot, there's a, so much that needs to be said around this conversation about nature, but I think the Tunis tries to get at some of that, right? You talk about uh, Dolores Williams' Tunis of nature, we have to be careful not to romanticize nature and say it's, oh, it's all good. And there's nothing but beauty there because there are some vicious things in nature. But at the same time, we, especially in the West, in Western society, have to be careful. And maybe I will say in American society, have to be careful not to construe nature as all bad and only good if tamed and disciplined. Right. Um, so maybe that, that's a one thing. The first thing we can say about nature is that we have to learn to make our understanding of nature a bit more complex because that impacts how we ourselves approach nature. Right. If nature's all bad, then really the only solution to that is that unilaterally impose our will because there can be possibly be no good in there. And if it's all good, well, there's no need to do anything. Uh, but I, I think neither of these solutions are, are viable. Um, maybe one other, another key point I'll mention about this conversation on nature is that whenever we talk about African-Americans and this relationship to nature, we have to be careful not to fall into what is called, and this is sort of what I'm getting at, but I'm going to use language now, this thing called primitivism, right? Where Blacks are seen as, quote unquote, more natural, 
than other quote unquote races. And therefore, we still reinscribe the racial division unwittingly, right? That, that Black folk have a more quote unquote authentic relationship to this thing called nature. And because of that, well, no, that's not what I'm saying. There's, there's not a primitivism there. It's to say that there were a distinctive set of experiences that did shape our relationship to nature, as it is the case with, with other cultures, right? And then what I'm trying to do is just elaborate on those. And then maybe finally I will say is that there is a way, I think, that African-American culture and other cultures issue a challenge to mainstream Western culture to see itself as more connected to nature, right? In ways than other than instrumentally, right? And I, I think this plays into uh, why we're seeing a lot of environmental abuse and destruction is because of the way that Western culture understands its relationship to nature itself, which is not unrelated to how Western culture relates to other ethnicities, right? That they also view as nature. So we're all part of nature. Um, and I think maybe uh, on the side of African-American culture, historically, the problem has been that we've been reduced to nature. But I think there's also a problem when you look at Anglo culture is that Anglo culture has understood itself as so, unless you're a romantic, right? This, I think if you're something like romantic, you don't fall within this uh, classification, but by and large, Western cultures understood itself as rational and therefore able to organize and discipline nature. And I think that leads to some problematic uh, environmental and political trends uh, that we're seeing now. So I think there's maybe a two-sided thing going on here. Yeah. That was a lot. I don't know. This conversation <laughs> about nature is complex. Man. It's, it's um, So you, um, you speak a good bit near the end of your article, um, near the end, about nationalism, um, yeah. different forms of nationalism, um, you say at one point that nationalism defeated slavery uh, and declared emancipation. Seems like a good thing, uh, but I wasn't quite sure what that meant exactly. Um, and you also say that the U.S. now understands itself as responsible for um, instituting a new world order rooted primarily in military power. Um, and that, it, that of late, uh, particularly with the Patriot Act, that we have uh, largely renounced equality before the law and a government bound by the law and our instituting a security state um, rooted in the national will, um, that sounds bad. Um, so there's these various yeah. sorts of nationalism that you uh, refer to. So if you could maybe tell us about kind of the some of the most significant ways you think ideas of nationalism uh, have evolved, and, and also, you know, are there acceptable forms of nationalism um, for instance, black nationalism or the nationalism that uh, declared it into slavery and emancipated. Um, and is there, what's the relationship between, and this is going to get tricky again, nationalism and nation states um, and um, yeah. democracies? That, um, the idea being, I can't imagine how there are democracies if there's not uh, nation states. And I can't imagine nation states without some form of nationalism. So it's a thicket. 
uh, and uh, you you kind of have all the different elements in there. Could you just kind of give us a, a summary of 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 what you think? Maybe maybe to give it a little more contour. What what are the what are the what what are the problematic forms of nationalism? And if there are, if there is a good form of nationalism, uh, what would it be? Um, or if it's not, do you have another picture of what could be a nation state or a carrier of liberal democracies, assuming that's something you think is a, is a good thing? Yeah, that, that, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, man, that's... All, all for your essay, though. So it's a... <laughs> the, the, the modern era in, in about five minutes. Yeah. Now, um, so, you know, nationalism is, I, I would say like this, based on my historical reading or you know, analysis of nationalism, just very brief in that, in that article, um, there has not been a form of nationalism that has not wrestled with this question of racial exclusion. I'll say that. I'll say it like that. Uh, U.S. nationalism that does not wrestle with this question of racial exclusion. Um, does that mean that all future forms of nationalism uh, will fail or look the same? I don't know. Um, I think we're searching I think we're asking that question. I'm asking that question. When I say we, I say other scholars doing research on religion and politics and this kind of thing, nationalism. I think if there can, first of all, I will say uh, on this question, I'm probably at the end of the day inclined to say no. It's going to be hard for there to be at least based on history, I don't know there can be a healthy form of nationalism. Now, having said that, I am open to to various permutations of nationalism. And, and again, my research has shown that it changed, right? So it did defeat slavery. Uh, but then there was a, a different form that excluded African-Americans uh, from the late 19th century to the early 20th century. Since uh, the 1960s, there has been uh, there have been a fraction of African-Americans that are included. Like we haven't got a black president, right? Um, now, again, this is a thicket, right? Although we had a black president, <laughs> there was a whole lot of nationalist criticism and interrogation uh, around Obama. Y'all remember this whole conversation around the birther question, right? And, and Obama's religion. Right? All, all these are reflecting sort of this nationalist orientation. So I am a proponent of democracy. Can, can nationalism continue to carry democracy? Uh, the historical record would show that nationalism is not the best uh, communal imaginary <clears throat> with which to carry democracy if you want a democracy that can be open to growth and development along lines of ethnicity and other forms of difference, right? So I don't know that nationalism is best for, for the kinds of open democracies 
that we want or that maybe you want to say that I want. Um, now, the question of whether nationalism should carry liberal democracy, well, that, that's a whole other uh, question, right? So I do think we're at a point where, and I think you even see this in contemporary politics, liberal democracy, while it does have, I think, certain advantages and benefits that we should uh, be mindful to keep, like, for example, uh, principles like equality before the law, right? Principles like equal protection before the law. Uh, principles like uh, freedom of conscience, these kinds of things, right? Uh, the general, maybe the, you, you, you talk about equality before the law and the other thing, just a general principle of equality, right? I think liberal democracies do offer benefits in these kinds of ways. However, I think there are limits to liberal democracy. And I think you're seeing this right now. One of the limits is that liberal democracy doesn't necessarily have a way of interpreting and registering a uh, group, ethnic groups, uh, or maybe I should say social groups, and then social conflict, right? So liberal democracy is... Has, doesn't have the best track record of handling those two dynamics. And I think whenever liberal democracy gets into trouble along those lines, it has a bad habit of falling into nationalist ways of thinking and acting, right? Whenever liberal democracies are presented, and this is not just the U.S., this is, I think, liberal democracy in a, in a general, more general sense, uh, presented with conflicts uh, or with social groups that don't necessarily fully buy into the liberal agenda, but that still sort of exists in the liberal society. Liberal democracy, I think, that's where you see the limits of liberal democracy. And that's where you begin to see uh, liberal democracies uh, fall into the traps or the dangers of emphasizing things like security, right? Like national security, removing uh, equal protections. Uh, this is what you see in the Patriot Act, right? Justifying uh, government surveillance and, and usurping uh, certain constitutional protections out of justification to protect protect the nation, right? So the nation, the nation for me doesn't have the best track record of handling conflict and of learning to. Uh, learning how to peaceably and constructively coexist with groups that may exist in liberal societies, but they're not fully liberal uh, in a certain way. Um, I'll say that and I'll stop. That, that, that was a lot and that was maybe too much. Um, so I'll just ask, as just one follow-up. Are you... Yeah. <laughs> suggesting the need to beware of tendencies uh, within um, liberal democratic nation states, for instance, the, the tilt towards security um, and, and other rhetorics and the, the tendency to, to define oneself through exclusion of certain groups, which, which you've seen, um, or are you seeing, um, you know, so those, those are things that need to be guarded against and corrected for, 
or is there another form of social organization, something other than a nation state, uh, which you're seeing as the uh, better vehicle? Yeah, so so I will say, well, I, I think both of those are what you said are true. A, yes, I do see it as, as a problem for liberal democracies whenever uh, when confronted with these issues of either uh, cultural difference, uh, for we'll use that term, and then conflict, that they fall into these uh, modes where they batten down the hatches, emphasize uh, priority of the nation, and downplay and even deny the rights of marginal and or subjugated communities. So yes, that is a problem. Uh, is there another way of understanding ourselves as a community? I, I think there are. Uh, there, there are a couple of languages that I like to use, but I also think that it's important that people coming together to participate in democratic life as citizens play a role in creating that language. I think that's a key point. So I like to use language, for example, of either beloved community or world house. And, uh, you know, these languages uh, both really emphasize that we have relationships of interdependence and interconnection beyond the particularities of our associations, groups, and ethnicities that we should pay attention to. And that these things matter for the well-being of our particular groups, right? These relationships matter. I like these languages. Uh, and I think these languages can do a lot of work, but I think it's also important that in civic spaces, when citizens are coming together, that they find the language appropriate for them, right? This language may not be the right language for them. I also said, you also asked a question about uh, black nationalism, these kinds of things. I think this is connected, right? So I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that, especially in the US context, black nationalism <clears throat> is in many ways a defense mechanism. Right, it's sort of, it's sort of a, a initial defensive position against a very oppressive uh, Anglo-American culture and, mind you, uh, glo the global power. So, you know, African-Americans are, are right underneath <laughs> the, global, the global Leviathan and seeking to put up as many defenses as possible, um, even as at the same time, we're seeking to also find ways to integrate and live constructively in American culture, right? Now, having said that, <clears throat> that's not an excuse for some of the, uh, I think some of the limits of black nationalism. And I think that we see limits of black nationalism most prominently, and I'll go back to this case again, in movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, right? In the Black Lives Matter movement, if you go to their website, or you look at any of the literature, that kind of thing, they talk about Black life all the time. They never talk about the Black nation. Why is this? Well, Black Lives Matter is really conscious and aware of the ways in which nationalism in 
all of its forms, whether it's the oppressive or the underdog form of nationalism, can itself participate in oppressive uh, relationships. So, um, you know, members of the Black Lives Matter movement will talk about the ways that certain forms of nationalism, white and black nationalism, uh, can reproduce certain patriarchal uh, politics, right? Or certain uh, heterosexist politics, things like this. And so even as I fully understand and can appreciate that black nationalism is a defense against, uh, you know, very oppressive U.S. Uh, system, we also need to pay attention to the ways that these uh, subjugated forms of nationalism can also reproduce some of the same oppressions on, on other populations. And I think that this is where I'm having, this is why I have a lot of issues with saying, yes, nationalism can give us the appropriate form of communal vision where we can all find a, a space and a place, right? Because uh, even if one day the nation, the quote unquote US nation was finally able to fully include African-Americans without a question, there would still be these questions of, of gender, of sexuality, of environment, right, of nature, that I don't think the nation is equipped to answer as an imagining. And so I think there are a range of scholars. I think one of the perfect examples of this for me was a text, and I think maybe I quoted a little bit in this book, uh, there's a, there's a text called After Nationalism. And, and um, I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name, but I've, I've seen the guy talk. I've been to his, you know, he's, he's got a great text on nationalism, highly recommended. I, I quoted in my essay. But the title of his book is sort of searching for that same question, right? After nationalism. He's asking, what do we do after this? Because it doesn't seem to be the case that this is able to deliver the kind of democracy that we want, right? So how do we imagine a community beyond the nation? And what is that community? Is it Rogers Brubaker? No, no, no. Oh. Um, it is... Let me... Oh, Samuel Goldman. Yes. yes okay. Samuel I just want to make his yeah. name, yeah. you're talking, name the book yeah. and all that. Yeah. I have your essay yeah. here in front of me. So Samuel yeah, Goldman. Yeah, has got a great text as well. Um, okay. But I think Goldman is, is the one that I think really is getting at this. And, and I think he's sensing, recent, I sense a similar thing as Goldman, that this communal imaginary is placing limits on the kinds of democracy that we seem to be wanting to achieve, right? It, it seems to be constricting. And so perhaps it is time for something uh, new to emerge. But maybe I, I would just say, I think, you know, this, this is not an end-all be-all, but I, I think this, this needs to emerge from the voices of the most subjugated, the most oppressed, uh, and we'd be paying attention to, to how these voices are responding and reacting to, to these imaginaries. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm going to combine a bunch of questions again here uh, yeah, because we need good. to be close to <laughs> wrapping up. But I want to ask this question, um, and um, it's um, how to put this together. It feels like there are two sorts, of, and, and so I'm not an expert on this. But so if I'm wrong in my framing, please. Let me, you know, make sure everyone knows I'm wrong in my framing. Uh, but it seems like there are two, um, I mean, there's many, many, but two sort of major um, trajectories um, flowing out of the thought of uh, King and then um, on the one side, and, and then Malcolm X and James Cone, early Cone on the other. I might even say early uh, Martin Luther Jr. King and later Cone. Um, and then early cone and X, where, um, uh, and this is related to what we discussed before, with the notion of ontological uh, blackness. Yes. Uh, and then what seems to have emerged kind of de facto is an ontological whiteness, where ontological whiteness and ontological blackness are not indexed to skin color per se. They become a function of a history um, of oppression. Uh, yes. which, which seems to me to create some confusion. It's not clear to me everyone is understanding the sense in which um, Cornell West and uh, James Cone would say Barack Obama is ontologically white, um, whereas in this sense, some of them would say maybe Bill Clinton was ontologically <laughs> black or someone yes. else like that. Or in the more recent cases where we've had um, cases of white supremacy with police where the perpetrators, it's not a skin color, it's it's the ontological whiteness or blackness which is what's being talked about seems to me this is a this raises all sorts of confusions that's kind of one issue whether or not that talk is advisable to what degree but at a deeper level uh um victor anderson's book beyond beyond ontological blackness is about um on uh, creating black identities which are of course not in denial about the history of oppression but looking and this seems to me to resonate with what you're doing with creative response but are looking to create these positive um, genealogies, positive qualities, looking to art and music, these other distinctives, which are not, which are, which are other, not, not unrelated to, but not essentially a function of uh, that history of oppression. Um, and, and, um, and so th there's that, but then there's a lot of pushback against Anderson, um, yes. where um, it, it's, it seems to me that he's getting all sorts of pressure from people who, who do not want to make that move because they think it marginalizes and does not take seriously enough, not just the history of slavery and the Jim Crow, but the new Jim Crow um, and, and the way these dynamics um, uh, endure. Um, at the same time, those folks are not, they're going to see Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech as hopelessly assimilationist. Uh, mm -hmm. And looking for this kind of common future, but that's going to lose the distinctiveness of, of what they're uh, uh, looking for. So, you know, a rejection of the melting pot. Uh, for a while, there was a salad bowl idea that was just a metaphor nobody wanted to be part of, and it was short lived. But what, you know, so I'm naming a bunch of tensions here um, um, and, 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 and in these trajectories and kind of wondering how your spirituality of creative response, where you land um, amidst them. So, so on the one hand, uh, the, the tensions of, of the degree to which to affirm or not, uh, you know, the degree to which to affirm ontological blackness, the degree to which moved beyond it. Um, and, and then related to that, you know, what is the, 
what is, is there a, a vision moving forward? This almost connects to your nationalism question or how to think of ourselves in community. Yes. Um, it, it seems to me that we have on the one side, kind of the Martin Luther King uh, trajectory, which, which is seen as problematically melting pot assimilationist. But on the other side, you seem to have what looks more like almost inevitably would turn into something sectarian. It doesn't have a unifying uh, uh, feature, uh, but it's very strong on um, in its ability to uh, maintain and protect uh, the identity of discrete groups. So, um, you know, in the sheet of questions I gave you, this was eight mm -hmm. different questions, which I'm trying to just uh, have you comment on um, yeah. as a whole. So I, my hunch is on many of my other questions, you think, well, I could, I could design three courses uh, to address these questions. Uh, <laughs> so but I still, I'm hoping it's, this is still productive to help people uh, kind of name and begin to think through these tensions. And again, be sure to bring into question my framing um, as, as even the attempt to frame these dynamics is something of a strong uh, move that I would want to be. Um, yeah. Yeah, so this is, is maybe a... Uh... <laughs> The perennial question, right? How, how do we how do we reconcile the the particularity of, of needs and concerns of African American culture uh, with this more the more general universal uh, concern or idea about? our connectedness to others, shall we say, this kind of thing. Um, I guess, you know, ideally, and we never live fully into the ideal, <clears throat> I like to think that my work sits at the intersection <clears throat> of these concerns. Um, but I do probably, it is probably the case of my work in terms of especially visions, this kind of thing, it leans toward, more towards beloved community, right? World house, that kind of thing. And I think my the primary reason that I lean towards this vision is not to deny black sources. I don't think that anyone who takes a good look at King can argue that King was, <laughs> you know, a, a cream puff assimilationist. You know, and this is not your word. I know this is not your word, but I know this is how people perceive King. Uh, King had King called out some social ills that we're still dealing with. They got him into a world of trouble, and hey, I don't know if you know this, got him killed. <laughs> so King wasn't, you know, if King was assimilationist, it wasn't in a easy, non-confrontational way. King called out three ills that I don't know that any other thing was called out. And this, this is not an exhaustive list, but King called out militarism. He called out poverty, or which is gesturing to economics, called out racism. Right? Now, if you want to bring in contemporary times, I think Cornell West gets at some of that same, those same dynamics. But in his day, I don't know that anybody called out all three at the same time. And guess what? King was alienated from a lot of people, even within his own group, for having the courage to call out all three. So 
First, I want to disband the narrative that King is assimilationist. And then I also want to disband the narrative that Malcolm X was this, you know, rabid black nationalist. These characters exist, but anyone who studies the figure of X knows that, especially in the latter part of his autobiography, he himself says, man, I had an experience with a white woman once when I was younger, and she came to me and said, how can I help? And I said, get out of here. There's nothing you can do. And X later on in his life said, I wish that, right? People never remember X's own experience when he went to Mecca and how that experience transformed him. And he started sounding a little bit more like King saying, oh, maybe there is a way that we can all live together. Um, And X said, if that young white woman were to come back to my presence today, I might say something different to her and talk about the ways that we could be in a relationship. Now, this is not to say that I forgot about the particularity of Black oppression, but I, I will say that near the, at the end of their lives, both King and X were leaning towards a more universalist position, right? Most people don't talk about that. I think it's because both of them realize that once you get out of the particularity of the American context, you still got to deal with this on a global context, right? It's not as if once you leave America, all these dynamics go away and that all of a sudden these other cultures don't exist. We still have to ask these questions, but now in a global context. And so... Yes, we need to talk about uh, African-American empowerment and advancement and liberation, but it can never be uh, without also talking about that within the context of how we're related to white culture or to Asian cultures or to, uh, you know, all sorts of cultures. Why? Because that's the world that we live in. Um, Now, I will say, I will say this. I think that even as you wrestle with all these dynamics, I, my research more and more wants to put the burden of some of these questions on formations like Anglo-nationalism, right? Or uh, these different modes of collective organization that claim to be able to incorporate all peoples but they continue to fail to do so, right? So I think that whenever you talk about Black culture and its collective modes of organization, some of them can be problematic. Like Black, Black Lives Matter has shown that Black nationalism can be problematic. But there is a way in which certain forms of Black culture are able to successfully both hold on to their particularity, right? King never left this particularity, but also understand themselves as American. Anglo culture seems to be challenged to do that, right? So I, I, am, I would love to be in conversation with my Anglo brothers and sisters about that tension, right? About how do we talk about Anglo identity appreciating its particularity, right? I don't, I don't necessarily think, there are different views on this. I don't think the solution is to get rid of this thing called, quote-unquote, white culture, Anglo culture. I think there's, we have to talk about its particularity, but also talk about the ways in which it is related to and connected to other 
cultures, right? How do we begin to have those conversations? And I think this is one of those kinds of conversations that cannot only be had theoretically, it must be had, I think I've adjusted choices before, with people sort of engaged in the practice, right? Actual communities coming together, communities of difference, to talk about what these languages mean and how they operate. I think that's the, the best way uh, that, that it happens. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Maybe, I think there was one other question or a couple of the questions that this reminded me of that, that I'll just speak to. One was about this. Um, you mentioned something of, I thought you were going to ask this to what degree creative response was uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I think we already talked about this. So, uh, the discourse on nature and how it was already prevalent at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, never mind. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah. You, yeah. you um, and 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 I'm, I'm moving us right along here so we could, yeah. because we're, we're, at, we're, we're at time, but I want to ask this question and then get to our final two. Uh, the very final line of your essay is um, uh, quoting an old spiritual God gave. Uh, to, I'm, I'm going to. Read this in in my. Yes. I'm not going to pretend to be able to read this in the proper <laughs> way. So I'm just going to say the uh, God gave the people the rainbow sign. No more water, but fire next time. Right. So yeah. reference it. But it sounds um, it, it sounds like a threat. Um, it sounds like the never again was a little more. You know, it was kind of like the parents saying, you know. I'll, I'll never do this again, but then I'm going to do something a little different. Like, uh, you know, when I'm thinking the never again, I'm never going to, you know, you know, ruin the whole earth, but, but it's just, I'm never going to do it with water. Next time it's going to be fire. Um, it, it, and so my miss, and I don't know the context that I got in my misreading ad. Is that, is there, a, is there a kind of a, yeah, a bit of a you know, threat in there? Um, and you know, and why know. did you choose that line uh, to finish with? And also, um, you 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 introduce it by saying it's um, uh, a spiritual. Um, and so, in what way yes. is this? Because this can get lost. I think all this is about spirituality, because the way we yes. are together, the ways in which we're connected together, the ways in which we cultivate and are co-creators and and do that as protest together. All of these things for me are what a lived spirituality um, are. Uh, but in some ways, in all the talk, um, you know, what it is to be a spiritual communion, how this is a, a spirituality of creative response uh, can get lost. So, so yeah. let me ask you to answer these two questions together. You end with a spiritual. It sounds a bit threatening. <laughs> if you yes. comment on that. And then well, also how creative response for you um, is um, a spirituality. Yeah. So. Uh that's a great question. And, and maybe I'll start by, you said, why did you use this or why did you end this? Um, well, first of all, it is, it is a song lyric in an old spiritual, um, but I also use it having read uh, a book called The Fire Next Time. This is by um, a, a mid to late 20th century African-American uh, Baldwin? Uh, yes, but yeah, I was going to say, uh, he, he was a preacher and then he became more of sort of a social critic. Uh, James Baldwin. Baldwin, yeah. Right? Yeah, who, who wrote a book called uh, The Fire Next Time. Um, 
Um, and this is the way that Baldwin ends his own book, right? So again, space did not necessarily allow for this, but a lot of this was a gesture to Baldwin. And, you know, a lot prevalent in Baldwin's time. This also is connected. There was another question about, you know, you, you see some Christian themes that present in there, and then there's a spirituality, and there's a, a conversation about Jesus at the end. To, to, should we read this as Christian? All right, this is one of your, your questions. Well, for Baldwin and for, for others like Baldwin, uh yes yes this is, this is fully christian um and it's re- you know it's 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 reflective that the question was so interesting so a yes it's christian but it's a particular form of christianity uh baldwin much like myself even though i am in the baptist denomination baldwin was reared in the pentecostal tradition right which is which is Kind of consider the the unwanted. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to phrase unwanted additional exam. I guess you could say uh, of of American or modern Protestantism or something like that, right? So there there's a way in which Pentecostalism itself has been subjected to that question, right? To what degree is this Christian? And this is primarily because. Pentecostalism really emphasizes uh, the idea of baptism in the spirit. And one of the ways that Pentecostals talk about that is baptism by fire, right? So one of the things that, that fire next time means is baptism in the spirit. But it's, it's a Pentecostal kind of gesture. And it could be the case that Many uh, more traditional Protestants, for different theological reasons, might say, uh, what's, what's going on here? Um, secondly, and maybe I also say that, that sometimes this is not recognizable as Christian for, for most Pentecostals because it's reflective of a dialectical identity to, to be in the world but not of the world. This is how many Pentecostals understand it. So, Yes, this is Christian, and sometimes we may use the language of Jesus, sometimes we may not. But this is, in many ways, uh, faithful to the spirit of the early church for Pentecostals. So th- this, yeah, yeah, that, that's, just, that's just, I think, in the way many Pentecostals, and in a larger sense, many African-American religious practitioners would probably read this language, right? Uh, secondly, I will say... <clears throat> You know, I don't know how to say this. I I wish it could be a threat, Bill. But today we live in an age <laughs> uh, where we're recording ecological disaster. And, you know, we, we kind of can even play out by the numbers where we're headed if we continue to do things the way we do them. So, you know, in a way, I don't know that it can be a threat. <laughs> anymore in a very sad and scary way right and, and now it's more just maybe almost uh, a logical description and predictor of events 
should we continue along this this current path? <laughs> and so, um, in, in a way, I wanted it to be more of a threat than I think it can be. You know, I, I think we already see the signs around us that if we don't do certain things about the way that we're treating the environment or the way that we're interacting with other cultures or countries, it's it's predictable. We will uh, there there will be literal fire. You know, in certain and, and guess what? There are, in certain places there already are literal fires, right? The California fires, kind of thing. So, um, it's to say maybe I wish it wasn't uh, uh, that much of a threat. You know, um, and then maybe I'll also say <clears throat> it in a final sense it does gesture to a common theme in a lot of African-American religious thought. And this is the idea uh, that the nation and nations are subject to, ju- to divine judgment, right? Re- regardless of the ways in which nations may convince themselves that anything and everything that they do is okay because it's for the preservation of the nation, right? Uh, that there is still a judgment to which the nation must remember it is subjective. This, this you see, you see this as early as figures of Frederick Douglass, uh, David Walker, uh, other 19th century thinkers. Well, they, they talk about uh, the Supreme Court of Heaven, you know, a, a, a court where even if the U.S. Supreme Court does not deliver the justice even consonant with his own declaration, right? Let's not talk about divine justice. If the Supreme Court doesn't do that, we know that there is another source uh, by which we can still call out some of the evils and ills that we see present in U.S. society. And it's also, you know, interesting that this reference to the court of heaven is is not so far from what you find in a lot of uh, early modern Enlightenment thought. I thought that was interesting. You know, um, <clears throat> I'm always fascinated by the fact that at the end of John Locke's two treaties of government, he says, yeah, the people have a right <laughs> to revolt against the government if it's not upholding its duties. And if they can't appeal to anything else, they can appeal to heaven. So this idea of a divine court of judgment, a a standard to which we should remember that we are subjected to divine justice, right? The idea of justice that would call national will into check whenever we do things uh, like uh, behave in ways that destroy the environment, for example, or behave in ways that jeopardize uh, the ecologies or the livelihoods of whole communities, right? Whenever we, we behave in those ways, uh, this is a gesture to say that we still have to remember that we are accountable to a standard other than uh, uh, simply the standards of national self-preservation. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say that, and um, I'll, say, I'll ask if you have any other uh, questions. All right, so I'm going to combine my final two questions. 
okay. in, into one. And, and right. the, the first is, is there something I didn't ask you wish I'd ask? Is, is, is there a question I missed that you'd like to answer? And if so, what is it and what's your answer? Um, and and maybe, uh, maybe there's not. You've said so much. It's been just fantastic. Uh, you, and then second, um, is there a single or a phrase or a thought uh, that you hope uh, would would spring immediately to mind uh, when we hear African-American spirituality of creative response? What would be the sort of summary thought or phrase or phrases you'd have spring to mind? So, You know, I, I think if there's one, this is, in many ways, this is unrelated to, well, it's not unrelated. It's just something that has been on my mind, and I've thought about it more and more as I think about this question of nationalism and this idea of culture, you know, and I, and I think if this, if there's one space that I was not able to get all the way into the essay, this area of culture, right? This, this I think, where a lot of, of nationalism shows up, but that we don't necessarily identify, right? We, we think nationalism, or at least especially the negative forms, are simply the erosion of constitutional rights for certain groups, uh, maybe the imposition of, of terrorist, terroristic tactics uh, to impo- impose a certain kind of authority, maybe police authority or something like that. But nationalism is also an imaginary in a, in a, in a, a vision about the world and about the self. And so I, I've just been constantly interested in all of these, this is kind of unrelated, but all these superhero movies. All of these movies about, uh, in a in a direct or indirect way, about politics, about cultural relationships, and about you know, and and national is also about, about the body, right? And this is if I could have taken the essay in a, in a few other places, it would have been about practices around the body and about how we treat the body and understand the body. Um, I'm just really interested in the way that nationalism may oftentimes, the, the values of the nation may oftentimes be communicated uh, through various cultural forms. And one of these cultural forms that in our own context uh, that I think we would do ourselves a disservice to look away from, even though it seems, may seem trivial, are all these superhero movies that are giving us these messages about what it means to be uh, a person or what about what it means to be a hero, right? What it means to be uh, a person with enhanced power. Um, and don't look now, but, you know, the, the, the primary hero franchise is Captain America. You know, so that has always intrigued me. And I've always loved heroes and comics growing up. It's intrigued me more and more now that all these dynamics are going on. Maybe a little bit off base, but it has a do with relationship between uh, nationalism and culture, which I think uh, is, is an important conversation to be had. Um, I think if there's one word that one would, I would li- like people to remember when they think of spirituality as creative response is rejuvenation rejuvenation because that's what the spirituality of creative response is fundamentally about you know you, uh, the practices of baptism 
the, the, the practices of protest that I talk about, the practices of gardening, all of these in different ways are about rejuvenation, both for the self and for the world, right? And so uh, the spiritual spiritual response is about that. And I think that's the key to this uh, type of spirituality. And I think that this phrase and term also opens us up to other modes and forms of rejuvenation, right? So I just listened and talked about a few practices uh, that were significant and prevalent in the literature, but this is not exhaustive. And so there are all sorts of ways in which uh, the theme of rejuvenation comes through. And I, I think the theme of rejuvenation is significant for so many reasons, both theologically and culturally. And so I, I would just lift up that term rejuvenation. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your essay, for the idea of the dronal. We have um, 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 Stephen Ray, Melanie Harris, Peter Paris, some other really distinguished folks who are reflecting on this topic uh, that you provided to us for this. And, and thank you for taking the time here, for you know, taking all these uh, questions, which are, you know, challenging. They're so complex, so many different yeah. layers, um, and yeah. giving us stimulate, stimulating ways uh, to think about them. I, I really yeah. enjoyed um, hearing you. I can't tell you how often I wanted this to respond and follow up in conversation, <laughs> but we needed to keep moving. Yeah. My yeah. hunch is a yeah. lot of people out there are thinking that way, um, and, and I'm hoping this will then provoke a lot of really constructive and good uh, conversation. So uh, thank you so much uh, for this, uh, Professor Todd. Asante, yeah. uh, it's been a wonderful time. Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation and um, I'm looking forward to having more with you in the future.